All right, this is a paid commercial advertisement from our sponsor, Flash Talking by MediaOcean. This ad was written by the Markitecture AI, so the copy was written by the AI, and I'm going to read it for you. Hey there, Markitecture listeners. It's your favorite ad tech guru, Ari Paparo, here to talk about our sponsor for today's episode, Flash Talking by MediaOcean. Now, you might be thinking, Flash Talking? That sounds like a superhero with a really specific power. But let me tell you, Flash Talking is actually a powerful ad platform that helps brands and agencies deliver amazing digital experiences to their audiences. With Flash Talking, you can create and deliver personalized ads that really resonate with your target customers. And the best part, you can do it all in one place thanks to MediaOcean's seamless integration. So if you're tired of juggling multiple ad platforms and want to streamline your digital advertising efforts, head over to MediaOcean.com slash Flash Talking to learn more. Trust me, your customers will thank you for it. That's MediaOcean.com slash Flash Talking. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Markitecture. Welcome to the Markitecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by my co-host, Eric Franchi. And Alan Chappelle. Alan is a widely respected privacy expert. He is the president of Chappelle & Associates. He publishes a newsletter known as the Chappelle Report, uh, which is a extensive deep dive. I read it this morning, and it's like 25 pages of privacy. It's like the, it's like the Atlas Shrugged of privacy. Um, and he is the board chair of the Network Advertising Initiative. So, Alan, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Ari. I, I think of it as the infinite jest of privacy, but but I, I think I like yours better. All right. Well, um, you know, I learned a lot. Like, it was great to, to uh, see all of it in one spot. There's so much going on. Who are, who are the typical readers of that publication? So it, it really varies. So I've got a couple of very large legal teams who like to have the additional POV, and they like to have it in a way that's framed from the perspective of somebody who's been in the industry a while, and in a way that, you know, most law firms are great at, you know, really providing an opinion. Right, that makes sense. And is is it a paid newsletter? It is, and it's it's uh it's a really different thing than most of the you know like Eric Seifert's got a got a thing, you, it, but it's not in the hundreds. It's in the it's in the tens of thousands of dollars a year investment type of a thing, more similar to a Forrester report. So, but, but it's it's also helpful just from the perspective of like you want to sound smart on the golf course type of a thing on issues of privacy. And then the the other thing about it is that like there are so many decisions are being made in com either complete ignorance or under a misunderstanding of the privacy rule set. And so this is a, intended at least to try to you know create some additional clarity. You've just defined my nightmare scenario, which is playing golf with lawyers talking about privacy. <laughs> not my comfort zone. No, I'm not a golfer either. Do uh, these sort of like uh, chief compliance officers or general counsels at some of the big platforms uh, subscribe? You don't have to be specific. I'm just yeah. curious. Yeah, there's there's some pretty big ad tech uh, or tech legal teams that uh, subscribe, but there's also you know it, it's traditionally been this sort of throw in for my monthly retainer clients, and then and as I look to you know kind of the next ten years of my career, like the thing I don't want to be doing is spending hours and hours poring over you know somebody's forty page data processing agreement. The strategy side of this is so much more interesting. And I think there is so much going on right now that it's almost impossible even for like a chief privacy officer to really pay attention. Like you can get some of the details via all the various daily digests out there and you can get like some insight on one or two issues if you subscribe to like, you know, somebody's newsletter. But the idea for this is like you can look at this 
And in five minutes, you get the gist. And in an hour, you get a comprehensive like view of what's going on. So, so that's a good segue um, to talk about hot topics and privacy. Like we could talk about privacy for hours and hours and hours because there's so much going on. But let's go through the most important issues that are going on right now that kind of our audience would be interested in hearing about. I guess I'd kind of tee up first, you know, state laws, federal privacy laws in the U.S. as a topic. Sure, sure. So uh, it might be helpful just to frame this. Like, sure. if we were having this discussion even five or six years ago, really, the only thing we'd be talking about is self-regulatory codes. Because even in yep. Europe, if you truncate an IP address, you sort of, you know, pre-GDPR skirted EU law because you weren't collecting personal data. So just over the last, you know, year, you've got now California, who, uh, by the way, you know, their privacy law, uh, well, we can talk about the regulatory impact, but like they have unlimited ability to create new rules whenever they want right. uh, over in California. I'm in California right now, great state, but it's almost scary the amount of power that their mini FTC has. Uh, you've got Colorado, you've got Connecticut, you've got Virginia. Those all go online or either online now or be online in July 1. Uh, and then you've got the state of Washington, who now has just launched a what they call the My Health, My Data Act, which has a extremely broad definition of health data to the point where almost anything could be considered health data. And on top of that, they've got what they call a private right of action. So that means that the, the class action litigants can sue you over any one of the many oh my God. sets of vague standards within this fact. So it's a really, it's a, so if you're a health advertiser, you are uh, nearing the point where you are just not going to be able to operate the way you used to operate. Meaning just don't show ads in Washington? I would certainly go as far as to say is don't show targeted ads in Washington. I'm not sure how you can. So, okay. So that's a, that was a great step back overview. So what are people doing about this? What are the tech platforms doing about it? What are uh, the advertisers doing about it? Well, I think it's fair to say that the advertisers are sort of sitting back. And, and I think there's a little bit of a combination of denial that this is really upon us. Because I, I really don't think that the, the ad industry writ large understands how fucked we are. Uh, because we are. <laughs> there goes that NSFW checkbox again. I'm going to have to put it into the podcast player. You've got... Oh, I'm sorry. I <laughs> no, I listened fine. to last. I listened to last week, uh, and I, I I thought that was uh, that was okay. It's fine. You've got a title for this episode, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> so advertisers are fucked. Okay, that we have a title. Uh, what What does that mean specifically? What do I do? I, I mean, if I'm sitting around. I'm going to stop cursing. I'm sitting around trying to figure out what to do, and my and the privacy expert tells me I'm fucked. What 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 do I do? <laughs> well, I I think that some of the some of the answer is just in like we're going to need to be much more keenly aware of the types of targeting segments that we use. Because for one thing, we're going to have to recalibrate the entire health vertical. Like okay. what we thought was not sensitive six months ago is clearly sensitive now. The FTC is telling us. Uh, and not that they get to dictate this entirely, but they're saying vitamin D uh, is sensitive. They're telling us acne is sensitive. Wow. Now, I don't think they can enforce to that level, but what that does tell you is when you get into things like asthma, that's probably now considered sensitive. And you're right. Really it used to calibrate. be. It used to be under the NAI guidelines, which you would know better than I would, that uh, certain medical conditions were sensitive uh, and others were not. So, like, I guess if you had cancer, it was sensitive. If you uh, if you had erectile dysfunction, it was sensitive. But if it was acne, it was not. And you're saying that's all gone. 
it's it's all pretty much gone. And so you're going to need to get creative in terms of how you're thinking about crafting those types of segments. Ethnicity and religion, off limits in Europe, but now arguably off limits in a lot of places in the U.S. Al, could you go back to the to the healthcare thing for one second? So you mentioned getting creative on on how you continue to market as a pharma brand, as as a healthcare brand. Could you expand on that? Like, how how are you advising folks? You don't have to get specific, but like, how can you do this if you're a you know if you want to market something that might be in this area of now going from not sensitive to sensitive? Well, I I think there's probably two broad approaches. Uh, one is the demographic type of targeting, so that you know if you're uh, creating a, a segment for you know, uh, breast cancer, well, okay, target just women. I mean, that sounds really obvious, but there's there's right. additional demographic things that you can do to create an audience that isn't necessarily sensitive, but sort of gets you a little closer to your target audience. By the way, even that approach, it, it's an open question whether that would work under Colorado's law, but that's a separate, and, and it probably doesn't work in Washington state. But the other way is that there's there's a number of companies who are doing just, I'm going to say, different variants of contextual, where they're not targeting necessarily the, they're, they're not creating profiles, but they figured out a way to say, okay, these 20 or 50 or 100 websites skew better for these types of products. You know, candidly, look, I, I feel like ad tech in general needs to do a lot more of that kinds of stuff, or you're going to suffer the fate of the privacy sandbox. Uh, yeah. It may be too late already. We'll get to the privacy yeah. sandbox. <laughs> I, I sort of have a follow-up question. I know we're going really in the weeds here. Um, but at what point do non-profile-based targeting also become discriminatory? Uh, obviously, for financial products, you can't use race would be a pretty good example. And if you can't use race, you kind of can't use zip code because it's redlining. How often do you see issues like that come up? Most of the issues that, that that I've seen over the last couple of years has been in the context of like Facebook targeting where there's – right. I mean, and they're the lightning rod for a lot of this. I would say you've got to be careful and, and you can't be too cute, but I think some zip code targeting works you know, perfectly well. Now, if, if it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're targeting these zip codes so we can get at a certain demo – you, you may have some problems, but the way U.S. law is structured, you can create those segments. You just can't create them necessarily for discriminatory purposes. Right, right. What, what if an algorithm creates them? What yeah, if the algorithm optimizes and suddenly you're only showing your mortgage ad to white zip codes? That's the Julia uh, Anguin uh, uh, argument. Um, I, I don't know yet. I think that uh, that's something that, that hopefully you've covered in your data protection impact assessment. Sorry, who's Julia Anguin? Uh, oh, you guys were talking. You guys have talked to her a bunch. She came out with the New York Times op-ed, and and she's best known as the part of the What They Know series from yeah. uh, Wall Street Journal with 10, 12 years ago. I knew that. Thanks for reminding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what are, what are the prospects for a federal law? Dim right now. There's just so much dysfunction right now in D.C. The ADPPA, which was sort of the last one, the comprehensive privacy law actually had a shot, a puncher shot, and uh, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't bring it to the, the House vote. And, and the reason, I, I not to blame Nancy Pelosi, but the reason she didn't was that there was so much support within the California contingent of Congress for what's going on in California. And, and I raise that because all these things are sort of related. If you see California abuse its authority or act just in a crazy manner and start subpoenaing the entire industry... I, I think that the support for their 
process may diminish within Congress. Similarly, if you see like the whole Montana banning TikTok thing, I mean, can we at least acknowledge how crazy that is? Like our system of government doesn't work if Montana gets to ban TikTok. Also, what are you going to do in Montana if you're not watching TikTok? There's nothing to do. <laughs> Let, think about the ranchers and their bored uh, teenage daughters. I, I've heard it's beautiful there. We keep meaning to visit. But uh, but if you start to see the states do crazy things, you're going to see a lot more momentum for a federal privacy law. And by the way, the dirty little secret is that that what may ultimately save data-driven advertising is that the number one customer for data brokers is often the U.S. government. Right. And when the U.S. government sees that, you know, wait a minute, if you ban these data brokers, the terrorists win. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you see that type of argument, I know that sounds crazy, but boy, look, we've been through the last 20 years together, guys. That's not the craziest argument you've ever heard. But that type of momentum may create, you know, may, may generate uh, the likelihood of a federal law. And just on this subject, it seems to me, and maybe you can also chime in here, there really isn't a partisan divide on this. It's sort of that both parties get, are getting distracted by issues that have nothing to do with this. The Republicans, you know, get all worked up about 230 and all that kind of nonsense. And the Democrats get worked up about antitrust and really big companies. But they both sort of want to have privacy legislation, it seems. Yes and no. I think that the, the, I, I agree. The Republicans are mad because they feel like the platforms, Facebook and, and, and TikTok, enable people to say mean things about them and they don't like that. Right. And then the, the Democrats, you know, many of them just refuse to acknowledge that there's a balance here between, you know, good privacy and business interests and the, the side of the Democratic Party that is very anti-big business and very pro-privacy seems to be winning out. Right. Right. Um, yet they're not getting anything done. Um, it's funny. Also, you talked about you talked about five years ago. I think uh, five years ago, the average ad tech people like me and Eric were probably pretty against legislation or maybe it's 10 years ago, whatever. We were just like government keep out self-regulatory. And now uh, in 2023, I think almost everyone in the ad tech community would really like to see federal legislation. Well, it, it's funny. I agree with that sentiment, but I'm I I would politely suggest it may be slightly misguided because okay. any federal privacy law is very likely to give additional rulemaking authority to the Federal Trade Commission, and this current Federal Trade Commission is not exactly a fan of ad, the ad tech world <laughs> or the data driven advertising world, and are using the admittedly limited powers that they have to really come after this industry. That's true. I don't want Lena Khan regulating my cookies. <laughs> so you talked about California a lot. Do you want to take us through what happened with Sephora? Because I think that was a real shot across the bow. It was. So I, I think what happened there, and, and look, this is part speculation and part rumor. So you can, I know you guys like that, but in legal circles, they tend to frown on such things. But I'm, I'm going to move ahead anyway. <laughs> I've heard things that, that their initial counsel told them to ignore the repeated requests from the California Attorney General to to take heed. And I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not saying it's true or not, but I would say it would make sense that a EU-based company would take the position that, hey, we're European. We have data protection in our blood. We don't need to adhere to your silly US laws. Anything we do in Europe is covered. And And I could see that sentiment being at least part of what happened to them, where if the AG sends you a letter and telling you to do something, 
probably a pretty good idea to to respond. So step back for anyone who doesn't know what what happened. Well, so, so uh, Sephora was sort of the first big enforcement issue in, uh, or enforcement action in California, and and the issue is that California has a very broad definition of what's called a, considered a sale to the point where if you're just pixeling somebody's website so that your you know your side gets a you know an IP address and a cookie ID and a couple of other log file data, that that alone in, in a lot of contexts is going to be considered a sale. And therefore, you need to provide the consumer with some level of notice of that sale and the ability to opt out of that sale. Now, what most websites have done is they've gotten one trust or some CMP and they they kind of address it that way. And it, it's, it's not that it's that difficult in and of itself of a fix, but apparently uh, support didn't have that. And What's sort of vexing is that California at the time had a what they call a 30-day notice and cure period. So you could have avoided any issue by simply fixing it within 30 days. And, and they were, probably would have given you 60 days. They could have put lipstick on it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, like they, they got fined uh, $3 million in my oh, – how much? I it was one and a half. But, okay. but, but yeah. it's an unexpected uh, find for a company that you wouldn't expect to be you know, on the wrong side of privacy stuff. And not that I'm not, not that I'm happy to see anybody get dinged, but but I would say as somebody who's sort of been an ad tech guy through and through for 20 years, it's interesting to see that there's more and more of a focus on what brands are doing, what publishers are doing, and what large first parties are doing. Because but let's face it, and maybe this is the right way to do it, but it seems like a lot of the regulatory focus has been, you know, on the ad tech guys. All right, let's go to Europe. Um, what is the current status of TCF and the lawsuits against it and the whole sort of self-regulatory, not self-regulatory, the whole regime of the IAB trying to comply with GDPR in this sort of complex way? Okay, so you guys said don't go into too much, don't, don't, don't talk too much. <laughs> but no, no, but I, I think you have to frame this a little bit. So the GDPR in and of itself does not necessarily require a consent for cookies. There's the e-privacy directive, but that's a directive which gets implemented differently within each EU member state. And I'm going to leave aside what happened to the Keneal over the last couple of weeks. But in okay. general, if you are the, the Keneal in France, you are reluctant to go, you are the one who's in charge of regulating this these cookies. You are probably reluctant to beat up your own publishers. And so you don't see a lot of these types of fines. So yeah, we call it the Critio exception. Yes. Well, I, th that's the the funny part is like I never thought Criteo would get nailed by the Canille, uh just by virtue of it. It's like they're your biggest French, anyway, right? But, right. Hometown hero. Um, but 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 anyway. So okay. So the way that Europe was set up, it's difficult to to enforce against cookies on a one-off basis. So what Belgium did, because the, the IAB TCF is sort of registered there, is that they wanted to cut out the head off the snake. And they went after uh, the entire you know compliance program for GDPR, at least for the programmatic world. Okay. So in order to get there, they had to say that the IAB was a controller of data. What yeah. data are they controlling? Well, they said, well, because the TCF string might eventually be tied to personal data that the TCF string in and of itself is personal data. And therefore, the IAB, even though they don't actually dictate the processing of that, they're the controller of that personal data. It is a tortured definition of EU data protection law. 
it will not withstand any type of challenge at the uh, EU Court of Justice. But nonetheless, here we are. You've got the IAB who's been sort of, you know, forced into fighting, defending itself. Okay, so I get that because the idea of the IAB as a controller is just absurd. But isn't the TCF under attack? Isn't um, like uh, Johnny, um, what's his name, Johnny Rockets or whatever oh, his name is? Johnny Ryan. Yeah, he's uh, yeah. he's like uh, trying to take it down, and uh, there's lawsuits just declaring the whole TCF as being in violation. Johnny Ryan and his team have, have launched a whole bunch of complaints in a whole bunch of different contexts, but it is, I believe, their complaint that Belgium considered uh, as part of their uh, ultimate ruling. But they're, they're not going to. They're unlikely to win that. But what they were able to do is they were able to get the IAB to make some concessions and maybe change uh, and improve the transparency. It's probably a win-win for everybody. And that, I think, will allow Belgium to sort of declare victory and allow the TCF to continue. Finally, a victory for Belgium. Um, <laughs> while we're on Europe, we have a lot of topics, so we're just going right through them. While we're on Europe, uh, data transfers. So we had a tortured conversation about this about two weeks ago on this pod. The short version is that Facebook was fined over a billion dollars for transferring European data to the U.S. This has been negotiated by the U.S. and the EU multiple times and is sort of in limbo. Is there a future to U.S. companies doing business in Europe and having their data processed in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think there is. So, so uh, we're in a weird, almost abusive cycle here, where the the EU hates the U.S. intelligence apparatus, and maybe rightly so. And and so th we put together a treaty. The Europeans hold their noses and accept the treaty. Somebody complains about the treaty. Uh, the somebody. It's always the same guy. It's the uh, same guy every Max time. Rems. <laughs> Well, if, if if Max didn't do it, somebody else would. Max and Johnny hanging out in their League of Justice. Yeah. But the net net is that, you know, it's a rinse repeat situation where, you know, we, we're now on the eve of essentially Privacy Shield 2.0 being uh, launched, uh, which will allow for the safe transfer of data until the EU Court of Justice dings it again. And, you know, you would ask me a question about TikTok and all this stuff is sort of related. Okay. There, there's sort of a because there's a very much a shoe on the other foot thing going on with TikTok with respect to the U.S. Like everything that that Europe has been saying about Facebook and Google, uh, we're now saying about TikTok and 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 China. Like, but I, I'm telling you right now, if we kill TikTok or kill data transfers, that will be the first shot in a huge trade war. Right. Right. Once so broken that seal. Like, because because thus far, all the Europeans have done is rattled their saber around like, oh, we're going to stop the, you know, and they've beaten up Google and they've beaten up some limited data transfers. But like, if you get rid of TikTok, I'm just telling you right now, that's the beginning of the end of of data transfers. Yeah, let's let's peel back the onion on what get rid of TikTok means. So in there is no law in the U.S. protecting our privacy, as we've discussed. There's also, uh, to my knowledge, no real law about data transfer of U.S. citizens outside the U.S., although, you know, if there's military concerns, I guess there are. Do you think the issue on TikTok is data transfer? Do you think if we had a law that prevented U.S. data from going to China, that that would kind of solve the TikTok problem? I think that would address some of it, but I think that it there, there's an anti-imperialism thing going on there, uh, also with the Europeans with respect to Facebook. There's a xenophobia issue going on there. I think it would help if there was more structure around what type of data could be transferred out of the U.S. I totally agree with that. But but that tends to be not how we operate 
uh, in the U.S. in terms of creating laws. There's a, well, let's just ban them. And so like that's what, you know, th- there was some sentiment around that last year. I don't, and within Congress, I don't, I don't think, I think that sort of died down a little bit. But, but again, if, if that creeps back up, it, this is a huge problem. So what happens? Let, let's say the unlike this scenario, TikTok is banned. You mentioned, you know, it's the first shot in the bow of a massive trade war. What do you think some of those next uh, next shoes to drop will be? Europe bans U.S. data transfers. Well, why? Bans those from Facebook. <laughs> why would they? Why would Europe react that way? Well, I I think that Europe is is incredibly uncomfortable with the data being with with the lack of process around EU to U.S. data transfers and the potential for European citizens to to get caught in that with with no real transparency and no process to to address, uh, I think, very legitimate concerns. So if you just pull TikTok out by the roots and say, no, no, no more data transfers to China, doesn't that then just provide a blueprint to Europe for like, okay, yeah, that seems like a really good idea. Let's do that. Well, let's talk the hypocrisy in that Europe's barely taken any action against TikTok. The Europeans are using TikTok just as much as the Americans. There's one law, there's a lawsuit going on, but it feels like much less enforcement vis-a-vis China's collection of European data versus the U.S. I could not agree more. There is a ton of hypocrisy. My favorite over the last year was that there was actually a, a note within one of the committees within the EU commission where they were evaluating data transfers to Russia. And and the net net was like, well, yeah, but, you know, we've got a long history of cooperation <laughs> with Russia, uh, so therefore we should be a little more lenient. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys have completely lost the moral high ground if that's the position you're taking. Absolutely lost it. Are we seeing just a general deglobalization of data centers? Uh, Russia has laws already that you have to have your data centers in Russia if you do business there. I think India does. Uh, China obviously does. Is that another balkanization that uh, American companies are going to have to deal with? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly in China. I mean, th- that mechanism, I didn't think India had gone down that road, but but boy, they, they've been on the one foot line for a, their privacy law for seemingly like five years. And so I, 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 I've lost track of where, where they ultimately are. That's a huge set of challenges. Another topic. And just bringing that... it back to ad tech. Yeah, go ahead. It is impossible to do real data localization. Because uh, uh, number one, eventually somebody is going to be storing their data in the U.S. Right. It's just right. almost impossible. I was advised when I was at Beeswax, we were thinking about separating our data centers, Europe, U.S., and I was advised by my counsel that it didn't even matter if the data was in Europe. What mattered was that U.S. employees could access it. So I would have had to have a different engineering team in Europe in order to comply. You know, the good news is that there are signs that they're starting to relax that part of their requirement. But but they're still like, you know, technically speaking, if anybody evaluates anybody's data transfers. So, by the way, this isn't a Facebook thing. It's just Facebook's the lightning rod. You evaluate just about anybody's data transfers. It is almost impossible to prevent the U.S. government from taking your data. What you might be able to do is have somebody other than AWS manage the encryption keys. And there are some companies that I know that do that, but but that creates its own set of security and logistical challenges around managing encryption keys. Like AWS is really good at that. Right. Interesting. Uh, Another topic we had teed up in addition to TikTok was Google as regards to a potential breakup. We'll talk about Google's other problems later. So if you think about the possibility that the network business at Google is going to get spun off, meaning 
in the exchange and GAM. Um, how do you see that from a privacy perspective? I don't think it matters. So, so if you're asking me a question of just like pure privacy, look, they've got enough data via everything else that if they got rid of GAM, they're still like the 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 biggest and the baddest, and they have so much data that like, you know, spending off GAM, I don't think is is uh you know I don't know deck chairs on the Titanic, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a really meaningful me- uh, remedy. And as I've said in the past, I think the buy side is much more dangerous. Um, but how does it relate to the rest of the things that Google's doing, like the privacy sandbox and just you know the way that they're sort of taking putting a fence around the open internet? It, it's sort of amazing to me that you know this is back to our, our previous conversation about like the industry seems to be in a collective denial about this, and like and I don't know why exactly that is, but nobody's speaking up about the the privacy sandbox. It doesn't work. And no matter how many times Google tells you it works, it doesn't work. There's latency problems. It isn't nearly as effective. Um, but but the problem with nobody speaking up about it is that uh, the Competition and Markets Authority, which is the regulatory authority in the UK, you know, has gotten Google to agree that if the privacy sandbox isn't, you know, in the ballpark of effectiveness of the current solution, that they cannot depreciate cookies. Right. But what I think Google is doing is just saying, like, they're going to say in the marketplace as many times as they can that the new solution works, that it works perfectly fine, and not hearing evidence to the contrary, <laughs> the Competition and Markets Authority is going to say, okay, well, it must be true, uh, and that they're going to be allowed to to, to to put out this, uh, you know, the, these tools and appreciate cookies. Well, hold up. Now you're saying it doesn't work. Okay, so there's well, the privacy sandbox is multiple things. Um, so the latest news we've heard is that their solution for retargeting, which is Fledge, that they renamed, I can't remember the new name, as a generic boring name. Yeah. Well, let's call it Fledge. That Fledge actually worked really well in trials. Um, and I've I even heard back channel from people I respect that they were pretty impressed by how well it worked. Uh, agree, and that that's a fair distinction. I've heard great things about about uh, about Fledge or the 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 What's artist formerly known as Fledge. <laughs> so what, what what do you mean? When you say it doesn't work, what doesn't work? I, I think topics. Topics is problematic. Topics is uh, a waste of time. They should just kill it. It's just yeah, a bad idea. But they can't. Right. See, see, because because they, they need to have top of funnel, bottom of funnel uh, solutions and. They're telling me that the topics, you know, works because if you if you remove that, then all you have is a is a retargeting solution, and that's not equivalent to cookies. Right. So you so topics always struck me as something that Google didn't actually need for itself, but it was like a bone to its publisher partners and the antitrust people to say like, hey, you, you know, publishers, your data is going to be valuable because we're going to let you target people based on topics. Is that your kind of take on it too? Well, also, there, there's a broader strategy here where, like, I think Google is really trying to, you know, part of the strategy here is they're trying to troll Apple. And what I mean by that is that the, what they're saying is, is, like, you know, Apple is doing all this stuff, you know, that that is harming the, the industry. They, they're doing it basically by sticking their middle finger up at the, but at the advertising industry and, oh, by the way, are creating their own competitive ad product. What I think part of what Google's strategy here is to differentiate their collaborative approach. And we can poke holes in you know, what we, they mean by collaborative, but it's light years better than what, what Apple is doing. Yep. And I think what they're trying to do is and – then, and then they hold it out and they let, say, EU regulators look at it. And EU regulators pee all over it and say, well, no, you still require a consent and, and th- this doesn't work at all. And what they're trying to do, I think, is to say, oh – 
So the sandbox doesn't work. Maybe you want to have a look at what's going on in Apple because okay. it's it's an almost identical offering. Oh, so it's a it's a bank shot uh, against Apple with the regulators. That's the first time I I've heard that. Part of the strategy. I think uh, that's part of the strategy. All right, let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back with the big news uh, broke by the Wall Street Journal about Google's other problems. So we'll be right back. This is a message from our sponsors at Attain. If you work in marketing or advertising, you know ROI and outcomes have never been more important. And as the deprecation of third-party cookies looms, you're probably thinking about how to make up for the loss of that crucial data. Good news. Attain makes driving, measuring, and proving outcomes easier than ever, even in a cookie-less future. Attain is a commerce data company that helps marketers leverage privacy-first data to drive better outcomes across media activation and measurement. Their commerce data is 100% opted in, available in real time, and provides marketers with visibility into purchases made across all categories, all retailers, and all touchpoints. What does this mean for you? Whether you want to gain new customers, retain existing customers, or simply increase customer lifetime value, Attain's opted-in commerce data allows you to more efficiently and more effectively drive outcomes. With Attain's data, you can measure and optimize in real time based on real sales data. The best part? Attain's measurement and data solutions are available with major partners like the Trade Desk, LiveRamp, OpenX, and many more, making it easy to get started today. Visit attaindata.io to start browsing commerce data for free. All right, we're back. Um, so, Eric, you want to take us through this um, emerging mega scandal slash nothing burger, depending on who you talk to, about Google? Mega scandal slash nothing burger. I like that. Um, yeah, so there was an article um, that broke this week. Um, Patients from the Wall Street Journal wrote it, uh, former guest on the, uh, on the pod, where basically there is a uh, kind of a next generation verification or analytics firm called Analytics, which uh, has not been on the radar of most people in, until now, but they've apparently been, been doing some interesting research for, for some time now, that basically said they were uh, looking at a bunch of uh, YouTube campaigns, so brands advertising on, on YouTube, and found that over half of the, uh, I think half of the revenue generated went to uh, ads appearing on non-YouTube properties. So that's number one, this sort of uh, a syndication thing or, or network thing happening here. But then number two, the apparent quality of a lot of those placements was um, not up to what I think standards for uh, the expectation of a YouTube premium experience was. So sound off, below the fold, questionable content, so on and so forth. And the internet went crazy. Or ad tech Twitter went <laughs> ad tech Twitter went crazy. Ad tech Twitter um, did go crazy. Ad tech Twitter went went crazy, and there's been been a, a lot of, of conversation here. So I've got some thoughts and, and bullets, but you know maybe you guys can react to it before we we go a level deeper. Yeah, I'll, I'll react a bit. Um, another part of the story is that YouTube, uh, Google put out a response that was pretty tepid, um, and so people didn't really like that so much. So point number one is a, a story is always more impactful if it reinforces your prior beliefs. And yep. this is not the first time Google has had problems with inventory quality. So the idea that they're selling crap as premium is it reinforces a lot of people's distrust of them. Second point is, uh, as a lot of people have been discussing, Google is trying to re to reestablish the black box through what's called Pmax, Performance Max, which is the default in Google Ads nowadays. And that's the uh, just give us your money and trust us solution. And so at, when you do that, you end up 
potentially having your trust betrayed. And that might be the situation here. Third point I'll make is I think they have a real branding problem here because they brand TrueView um, as their premium product where the user chooses to watch the video or not. And it's very innovative and it looks great on YouTube. Advertisers like it. But when you audience extend, they don't have TrueView. They, they, and in their response, they said, uh, we believe or we guarantee that 90% of the video views are viewable. Well, that's different from TrueView, where everything's viewable, right? They, so they, they're selling TrueView, and then their backup is like, well, it's 90% viewable, which is totally different from a branding perspective. So I, I think there's a lot going on here that's raising questions and making people kind of skeptical. Um, I'll hand it over yes. to Alan. So I, I, I've got two thoughts on this. One is trust and in the context of the privacy sandbox. Okay, so Google's got, what, five separate anti-competitive suits against it. So so you've got five different instances where, where there's credible allegations that Google is not or has not played fair in the marketplace. And now you've got this research, which is basically, basically tantamount to saying that Google is defrauding its advertisers. Okay, right. now in the context of the privacy sandbox, what Google is asking us to do is to trust them, to trust them that this tool works as advertised, and also to trust them that you can build a viable business on the back of this privacy sandbox, which, by the way, is a bit of a sucker's bet in my view. But but when it comes down to trust, it's very difficult to trust them at this point. Yeah, I think that, uh, and that's the, a big part of it. And then, and then I just have a, a second observation. Like, if Lena Khan and the privacy advocates sort of get their way, and we're we're left with you know a handful of walled gardens, which is the only way that you can do you know digital advertising, it, you know the problem here is that you are stuck with their definitions and their uh, abilities. So you have no independent way to to vet the efficacy of the media spend, and that's, that's a right. horrible outcome. And some of the comments about this um, are that uh, on the Google side, they said, well, you could always opt out. Not true. You can't opt out on Pmax. Um, only true if you do Google ads or if you do YouTube audience extension. So, and, and by the way, the default, of course, is not opting out, right? So the devil's all in the little, little details here. And the other thing, the other kind of sentiment, especially on Twitter, is this is a solvable problem. And Google's chosen not to either chosen not to solve it because they, you know, don't want to put the effort in or chosen not to solve it because ultimately uh, reach is uh, reach and performance is often driven by bad inventory. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. So, you know, people are, are shouting about make goods, shouting about uh, Google needs to refund. Um, I think it was, you know, that the, if it was. 10% of uh, YouTube revenue, I think somebody threw that, that out there, it's like, you know, two point something billion dollars, which is what folks are suggesting the, the make it should be here. I think, though, if indeed at a campaign setup level, you are, I think, explicitly opting in, sounds like you're saying, Ari, it's like, actually, you're opting out. I think uh, it's opt out. Part, yeah, the partner network thing. Um, I think uh, it's going to be tough to challenge from a, a, a make good perspective. Two thoughts here. Uh, number one, are these performance campaigns that, that are in question here? And if they're performance campaigns and folks are pleased with their performance, again, um, is there a like, again, I'm not yeah, defending. Always, that's always the question with the stuff is the, yeah, you know, the yeah. performance, right? Exactly. I'm not defending this. I, I think this is garbage because the, those, those dollars could have gone to like good placements, good publishers, everything like that. But just like, Holding and, and we have Alan here, which I think is very, very good. Like, is there a leg to stand on if there was either explicit opt-in or a uh, sort of explicit non-opt-out? 
on the on on the buyer's side. I I I if you're asking me, there there's a lot of leeway in a in a arm's length transaction, even if it's a company with 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 Google and who's huge and with and somebody who's a lot smaller. And the reality is, it's like where are they going to go? Right. Like it's not like they can go across the street and and go to the other, you know, go go to Zoogle and 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 place their buys. And so that's the that that that's sort of the the trick here. Yeah, and part of the irony here is that whenever the antitrust folks knock on Google's door, they always exclude YouTube because Google can make the argument that YouTube YouTube's only five percent of all video advertising when you include TV, right? Uh, but it's a must buy in internet, so it's a it's a it's a monopoly in its market if you define it in a certain way. One other point I'll make that somebody brought up on my Twitter feed, which was where are the verification companies? Um, so Double Verify has a partnership with Google, put out a big press release. They verify the YouTube inventory. I'd love to hear their perspective. Didn't Google just get certified with one of the one of the self-reg programs on this specific issue? Like I'd love to hear from them. MRC? No, no, wasn't it? Well, I think MRC, but also uh what is it, Trust Ads? What what what's it what's that Trust it's Not ads? really privacy related. No, no, no. I, okay. and oh uh, well. Well we'll look at them. Yeah. Yeah. Has anybody looked at the methodology that analytics used on this stuff and is there is there a gray area there? Uh, yeah, so analytics is using a browser plugin with an opt-in panel. Um, I, I think that the real question in the methodology comes when you start saying, "Well, how big a problem was it?" Like they definitely found, and the Wall Street yeah. Journal said we the writer, the author, patient said specifically, "I saw examples of this happening." Um, so she was able to confirm it happened. She wasn't able to confirm the volume. So number one, Mike Shields wrote about this type of stuff in 2011 on Digiday. It is crazy that a decade later, this is this is still happening. And then, um, you know, number two, does this leave a window open for some sort of innovation on like extremely controlled brand centric, you know, like vi video ad tech to to emerge um, and capitalize on this? I think those are two uh, two other interesting things float, float around my head, at least. All right, let's move on to an interesting piece of news. So Anzu, A-N-Z-U, uh, is an in-game advertising company. Um, they raised $48 million um, for their in-game ads. Uh, I think we're, we usually aren't covering just funding announcements, but that's a big one, for, especially for in-game ads. Uh, so Anzu has been interviewed on Architecture, so you can see their interview on um, Architecture TV if you're a subscriber. And I was involved a bit when they got an investment from NBC, uh, and they have a relationship, sales relationship with NBC. So um, does this mean in-gaming is happening? I guess so. I mean, that's a that's a big raise. It's always been this like market that is a, a hop outside of core ad tech. Um, so it's like we we always are somewhat taken by surprise about these types of things. But then if you look at the size of the market and the size of gaming, um, you know, what one would one would expect they could support a couple of big businesses. I think you brought up Ari something interesting in that the round was led by Emmis. Emmis, um, hot ninety seven. That's what I was gonna say. Like the place for hip hop. Seven. Yeah, exactly. So um <laughs> it's uh it's interesting. And you know, I'd I'd love to sort of understand where the where the connection is there. But I mean, good on them. It's clearly like an enormous market with um, you know, a real opportunity. And you know, again, that could be an interesting fertile ground for some innovation around video ads. I had some of my European friends say, Could I just walk around the Midwest looking for media companies flush with cash? <laughs> how big how big is the United States? My question is, how reliant is this company on mobile ad IDs? 
It's a, it's a good question. So um, I, I understand the company pretty well. So they, they're doing console. They, they do Roblox ads. They have ads in mobile games. Um, they're uh, very programmatic dependent. So their pipes are to go from the SDK in the game through the programmatic channels to the buyers. Um, so they're just as, I would say they're just as dependent on the identity world as really any other, you know, SSP type company. Interesting, because that's a hell of a number then in the context of what's going on with, you know, Apple and their, you know, depreciation of mobile ad IDs. That is true. Yeah, I mean, they must be very reliant on probabilistic and, and also very bullish on the arms race between, you know, be, between, uh, you know, Apple and, and that part of our industry. Yeah, I think they're a little, and I may be wrong here, but uh, they're not as much in the mobile CPA flywheel uh, in the mobile gaming space because they, they are a little bit more focused on immersive three-dimensional environments. That's their kind of special SDK sauce uh, where they'll take a banner ad and turn it into a billboard ad in a racing game. You know, we've all heard that pitch a million times. I think it's interesting. There is a company called Bidstack out of the UK that is publicly traded. Um, so you could look up their financials um, and their market cap, I think, currently is about $10 million total market cap. Uh, so um, another example of a in-game company that maybe isn't as doing, doing as well or getting as much excitement around it. One thing about Anzu is you could think of it as a call option against the metaverse. Uh, because you would expect that if you are able to monetize immersive three-dimensional games, you would be in a pole position to monetize the metaverse were that ever to occur. Yeah, but in the meantime, the gaming space is, is enormous. It is, and it's also yeah. a demographic that's very hard to reach otherwise. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Good for them. So there's some news about Kroger going in-house. Um, so I think, Eric, you may have put this in, in the show notes. Um, they hired 100 people to go in-house. That's a pretty big investment. Yeah, yeah. It made the news. It was, it was a, a couple different places. Um, they, uh, they're building an in-house ad tech operation. So I think that's, um, that's pretty significant um, if you think about it from the standpoint of what it takes to build your own you know, O and O and, and, you know, sort of like partner driven, um, ad tech stack. I think that's number one, but then number two, the hiring thing I thought was the big news. Uh, they hired close to a hundred people over the course of the past year to, to do this, um, in an age where the, uh, you know, sort of like a lot, lot of companies are, are doing the opposite. So I think it's, um, a validation of, of retail media, but B, you know, this is, this is a, a move for the, for the big boys slash b big girls. Um, you know, you need to have the capacity to support like a really significant ad offering. So I don't think this is necessarily a trend. I think there's probably, you know, 12 plus or minus uh, RMNs that can do this. And I think the rest of them are going to be, you know, in a position of, you know, sort of like duking it out um, and probably uh, joining together. Uh, or joining some sort of RMN type of initiative. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a cutoff somewhere. It's just hard to see where the cutoff is going to be right now because it's a gold rush to get that retail media going. I, I do see this as a as a trend. Whether whether everybody takes it completely in house, I can't say. But you know, Eric Seifert always likes to say that everybody is an ad network, and and I I would qualify that because I and I think it's an important qualification. Everybody is a first party ad network because that's what in the US yeah because within the US if you can legitimately straight face claim to be a first party that is a almost entirely a get out of jail free card uh on the privacy side L less so in Europe although I don't even think Kroger operates in Europe uh but uh I, I could be wrong uh but but in the US if you're a first party or you can claim a first party status then the privacy rules 
probably an overstatement here, but they don't really apply. Yeah, or at least they it gives you flexibility. You could do a lot of things with first party that are harder to do with third party, just also in terms of accuracy. So you need uh, to be able to support a significant advertising business, and you just right. need to reach that that scale. And I don't know where where the where the cutoff is. It's also yeah. hard to hard to find the right talent sometimes in these locations where these retailers are based. Exactly. What, what's going to yeah. be what's going to be really interesting is you know the 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 supermarket industry for years has get you know gets all this analytical data based on purchases. Some of it's tied to you know their their shopping cart thing. It'll be interesting to see how that gets integrated uh, into the soup. And then in addition, you know, whether that, you know, does that bring some additional scrutiny onto the loyalty program that they've been operating for the last 50 years? Yeah. You know, uh, some some Midwestern mom is going to be like, these corn puffs are following me around the Internet. How is this happening? (laughs) Uh, So one last story I found interesting, um, which was this is a press release from the Media Trust. The Media Trust is a vendor that does uh, ad security for publishers. They were interviewed on Architecture TV. So check that out. And they claim that malvertising, so at really bad ads, were increasing in Ukraine uh, pretty dramatically since the war started, and it's coming from Russia. I, I guess I would get this. Let's assume this is true. I don't know if it's true. It's a press release from a company. But like stepping back, how does ad tech need to think about its kind of uh, geopolitical exposure? Maybe that's a good one for Alan. I I think this is just going to be an ongoing whack a game of whack a mole. Because like I like this takes us back to the to the YouTube issue. Like I don't know that this is a hundred percent solvable in a world that uh, unless you are going to dramatically restrict uh, the number of pipes. Right. Well, I mean, perhaps it's the vendor vendors need to think about where their ads are showing and when in a state like Washington State for healthcare or a country like Ukraine that's under attack, they need to uh, think twice about what ads they show or have different levels of scrutiny. I, I would agree. Like So so it's funny. There, a lot of the problems in ad tech are caused by nobody thinking certain things through. <laughs> yeah, that's like, so true. There, it, it's funny because you could never create a perfect solution in ad tech, but you could make it wildly better if everybody would just pay a little more attention. Right, right. Uh, the number of times uh, we tried to onboard a customer onto Beeswax, and it turns out they were a total scam company up to no good. It's just extraordinary, but we were good at finding them. Um, all right, let, let's call it. This is an amazing conversation. Um, we covered some great topics. Alan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. Eric, pleasure as always. Yep, you got it. Take care, guys. Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.